Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that as we look at your word together, that you would help us, Lord, to recognize, to understand, to believe in our hearts with faith that to live is Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would work that in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to continue with our series through the book of Philippians today. Um, and the main idea this morning that I, I want you to, to think about as we look at this text together is that your life belongs to Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You do not exist for the sake of your own pleasure, your own delight, your own desires. You exist for Jesus. That is what the Bible teaches us, and that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. So today we're going to go uh, from verse 12 through verse 26 in Philippians chapter 1. And so first we're going to see uh, in verses 12 through 18 that Christ is proclaimed. Christ is proclaimed. So this is what it says in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So last week, we looked at the opening of the book of Philippians, and we talked about how Paul was imprisoned and how the Philippians, because they loved Paul so much, they still were supportive of Paul, even in his imprisonment. And so Paul here starts to talk more about his imprisonment. So when he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, when he says that what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment. And he's saying, I want you to know that this event, this imprisonment in my life has served a very specific purpose. Because Paul is imprisoned because of the gospel. See, Paul is going around to all of these different cities, these different regions, and he is preaching Christ. And the first place he goes, every time he goes, is he goes to the synagogue, which is where the Jews are. He goes to the synagogue because Christ is the Jewish Messiah. And so he goes to the synagogues and he says, hey, all of these Old Testament texts that you guys are reading, which we know it as the Old Testament, they knew it as the scriptures, all of these scriptures you guys are reading, they find their fulfillment in the man, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here's all the ways he's fulfilled these prophecies. Here's all the ways that we know that he is the Messiah. Well, believe it or not, the Jewish people didn't take too kindly to being told, hey, this guy you guys murdered, yeah, that was God. They didn't like that very much. 
And so they did everything they could to stop Paul and to stop his message. And so they would beat him. They would arrest him. And no, it was not. It was usually in that order. They would take matters into their own hands first and beat him and say, if you keep preaching this, we're going to beat you more. And Paul would keep preaching it and they would beat him more. And so when that didn't stop him, they would have him arrested and they would charge him with things like treason. They would say that he was leading an insurrection against Caesar because he was running around saying Jesus is king. So they would arrest him. They would imprison him. And finally, they would run him out of town. It even went so far as to have these people follow Paul from city to city. So Paul would go and he would stay and he'd preach the gospel and people would be converted. And then Paul would leave to go to the next place. And then these people would come behind him and say, oh, so by the way, all that stuff that Paul told you about Jesus, he left some stuff out. So to really, really be a Christian, you really have to be a Jew. So let's make you guys all Jews first. So they, Paul was being fought at every turn by people who were trying to restrict the gospel. But Paul kept preaching. He understood that what he was doing served a purpose and that his sufferings also served a purpose. The advance of the gospel. And so this was evidenced here. We see it in our passage. We see it evidenced in two ways. The first way we see it, Paul was sharing the gospel with the people who were imprisoning him. He says in verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It was very apparent to these men, these soldiers, these prison guards, that Paul was not the typical person that they were guarding in prison. He was not a hardened criminal. He was not a revolutionary leader. We know from other places in Scripture that Paul was not a particularly impressive man. He was not a very good speaker. There wasn't anything remarkable about his, his public speaking ability. He also had what most scholars think were some physical issues, some, some, sort, some sort of physical deformities or infirmities that constantly made him weak and suffering. He went so far as to pray that God would remove this specific thorn in his flesh. And so Paul was not someone that you would look at and think, wow, that's a really impressive dude. And so when he inevitably ends up in prison, these prison guards are used to dealing with hardened criminals. And here is this man who isn't fitting the mold. But one thing that Paul does is he never shuts up. There's a story in the book of Acts where Paul preached so long that a, boy, a young man fell asleep, fell out of a window, and died. And so Paul goes downstairs, he raises him from the dead, and then goes back to his sermon. That is a man who never shuts up. And so Paul is in prison, and he is telling his guards, I'm in prison because of Christ. And they're saying, who is Christ? Who is because he's imprisoned in Rome, more than likely at this point. And so they're, well, who is, who is Jesus Christ? That, that doesn't mean anything to us. And so he is constantly telling them about Christ. And so word spread throughout everyone involved in Paul's captivity. So obviously this is a benefit. This is a benefit to Paul's suffering, Paul's imprisonment, because people who would not normally interact with Paul are interacting with Paul and they are hearing the gospel. 
a work of God has brought the gospel to this captive audience. They have to, they have to be there with Paul. It's their job. If any of you have ever had a job where you have to interact with people, you can understand what I mean when I say a captive audience. Because no matter how bad you want to hang up that phone, you just have to keep saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, until they're done. And so the guards have to stand there guarding Paul while he keeps telling them about this Jesus who died to free them from sin. The second evidence that we see is that other believers are becoming more confident in the wake of Paul's imprisonment. He says, and most of the brothers in verse 14, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now you would think throwing someone in prison for preaching the gospel would have the opposite effect. But this is how God works. The world thinks things are going to go one way, and God says, no, we're going to do the opposite. And so the imprisonment of Paul has these people becoming bold because understandably, there was a great deal of fear about what might happen to them if they got out there and were public about their faith. But seeing how God was using Paul's imprisonment was helping them to see the value of serving Christ without fear. As humans, we have a natural fear of the unknown. But when we know the outcome of something, even when the outcome is bad, it's easier for us to respond with boldness rather than to be afraid. Even if we know the outcome is bad, we can at least say, well, that's the worst that can happen. And so we can respond with boldness. And further than that, when we see someone else take something on without fear, we can be inspired and emboldened to act in the same way. And so that's what's happening here. Paul being in prison is advancing the gospel because Christ is being proclaimed. But not everyone had good motives. In verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Some people were emboldened to share the gospel because they were either envious or had in their mind a rivalry with Paul. They were using his imprisonment as an opportunity to advance their own status within the churches. As I said before, Paul was not a particularly impressive man publicly. He was obviously very intelligent, but he was not someone who was a very well-known, a very gifted speaker. He was physically weak, and so... A lot of people look down on him. We see this a lot in first, first and Second Corinthians, where people are dismissive of Paul for one reason or another. And so we have these people who are like, well, forget Paul. I'm the real preacher. I'm the real teacher. And so now Paul's in prison and like, well, this is my time to shine. So that's what they're doing. Whatever the case, they weren't motivated by love in preaching the gospel, but rather they were motivated by wanting to harm Paul in some way. But there were others that were emboldened for the right reasons, right? They love Paul, and they see that his imprisonment is a result of his defense of the gospel. But Paul's response to both of these motivations is the same. He doesn't speak out against the ones who are preaching for the wrong reason. He doesn't put them on two different levels. His response is the same. In verse 18, he says, What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is rejoicing because the most important thing to him, the most important thing in creation, is not Paul's reputation. It's not Paul's name. It's that the gospel be spread. That's the most important thing. It's Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, look, even if their reasons are bad, I don't care. I don't care. Paul recognizes that he is a flawed, sinful man, and God uses him, so God can use these other flawed, sinful men just like that. And that's what's happening. Now, I want to I take note of something here. It is important for us to understand this passage the right way. Because people have taken this verse, and they have taken it and used it to say things like, well... Even if their theology is wrong, at least they're preaching Jesus, so we should rejoice. That is not what Paul is doing here. Over and over and over again in Paul's writings, we see him criticize and speak against wrong doctrine and wrong theology. The men that Paul is talking about here are men that apparently have right doctrine and right theology, They just have bad motivations. And so we need to be very careful who we partner with, who we endorse, who we celebrate. Because bad theology is far more dangerous than simply not preaching the gospel at all. Because let me me explain what I mean by that. We are here in South Louisiana which is one of the most heavily Catholic areas in the entire world. When I went to seminary, one of my seminary professors talked about the difficulty of doing ministry in South Louisiana. And this is really true in a lot of the United States, but specifically here. He said it's very hard to preach the gospel here because the first thing you have to do is convince people that they're not actually saved yet. Because their theology, their understanding of Christ is wrong. And so when we endorse bad theology, what we are doing is we are convincing people that they are in Christ when they are not. Because they're not serving the real Christ. They're serving a made-up false Christ. So be very cautious with how you understand this verse. Because people who are preaching bad theology do great harm to the church. So when you share things on Facebook, think about who it is that's saying it. Because just because that one statement might be right, their bigger picture theology might be really wrong. And if you have questions about people that, preachers that you might see on YouTube or on TV, and you're curious, like, hey, is this someone who's safe to endorse or not to? What should I do? I will gladly help you. Come and talk to me. That's not to say Pastor Corey is the gatekeeper of good theology, but it is to say I have spent a lot of time doing research and reading and listening to sermons to recognize where they are, what they are actually teaching people. 
So like I said, recognize this verse for what it is, an endorsement of good theology taught by bad people, not bad theology taught by bad people. The next thing we see in verses 18 through 26 is that your life is for Christ. So verse 18, the end of it says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul is also rejoicing, not just because of the proclamation of the gospel. Paul is also rejoicing because he knows that he is going to be delivered from his captivity. And when he says this here, he's using the word deliverance in two different ways. There's two different possible outcomes. First, there is the obvious idea that he will be released from captivity with his life and he will be able to continue to serve Christ. The rest of this passage indicates that Paul was fairly convinced that this was going to be the outcome. But there's also the understanding that for us as Christians, deliverance means that we will be taken from this life, delivered from these sinful bodies of death, and brought into the presence of God for all eternity. Essentially, in one way or another, Paul is going to be delivered from captivity, either captivity in a Roman jail or captivity in this body, and he will be delivered from that. And the reason that Paul wants the prayers of the Philippian church is that he, he wants to be sure that he will not dishonor Christ, whether in his life or in his death. Whether he continues to live, he doesn't want to dishonor Christ. And if he is executed and put to death, he does not want to dishonor Christ. This is accomplished, Paul says, with full courage to continue proclaiming the gospel and living for Christ no matter what happens. And he sets it here as the opposite of being ashamed. So in Romans chapter 1, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, if I am not continuing to honor Christ in my body, whether by life or by death, it means I am ashamed of the gospel and I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. That's what he wants prayers And so Paul here helps us to recognize what is most important for us is to understand that to live is Christ and to die is gain. To remain in the flesh means fruitful labor. To depart and be with Christ is far better. All right, so Christians, if you are afraid to die, don't be. Because being with Christ is far better. You, you, you might love your family. You might love your home. You might love your beautiful piece of property. You might really like macaroni and cheese. Whatever it might be. 
Christ is better. To depart and be with Christ is better than anything this world could ever possibly offer. So the question is, the question before us today, is this how we think of our lives? Do we think about our lives in the sense of, if I stay, it means fruitful labor for the sake of advancing the gospel. And if I die, it's far better because I go to be with Jesus Christ. Is this the way we think of our lives? I have been with people who were facing certain death. Whether it was a, a diagnosis, whether it was a severe injury. I've been with them after they've heard that news, when they've heard that news. And often what I've heard believers talk about is that they want to keep living. They don't want to die. They want to keep living. But the reason that they want to keep living is not fruitful labor. It's not the advance of the gospel. It's not serving Jesus Christ. It's things like family dinners. It's things like fun vacations. It's things like there's so many things left that I want to do. And what Paul shows us here is that those things... There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with family dinners. There's nothing wrong with fun vacations. There's nothing wrong with desiring to do those things. But that's not what our lives are for. That's not what our lives are for. I remember when I was a teenager, my youth pastor taught out of this passage. And all I could think about the whole time was, I really hope I don't die as a teenager. Because I want to get married and I want to have kids. I want to do those things with my life. And I look back at that now and I, I am so broken hearted over my wrong attitude. Because my attitude should have been, if I live, it means fruitful labor for the cause of the gospel. And so brothers and sisters, I touched on this last week. If you still are breathing, you have a responsibility to serve the Lord for the sake of advancing the gospel. And that might look different for everybody. That might look different for everybody. It might mean that your area of responsibility is cutting the grass at the church. Guess what? That's a way that we serve to advance the gospel. However, please don't misunderstand. If that's all you do, if that's all you do and you say, well, I've done my part, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Because Paul would tell you, you also need to proclaim the gospel. See, listen, my responsibility as your pastor is not to come over and tell your neighbors about Jesus. To come over and tell your kids or your grandkids about Jesus. That's your responsibility. My responsibility as your pastor is to equip you to do the work of ministry. That's my responsibility. And so your calling, as long as you have breath, is fruitful labor in advancing the gospel. And then one day, you will die. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be 50 years from now. It might be longer. But guess what? We should not fear death. Because it's far better. It's far better.
it's important for us to recognize here that despite the far better nature of going to be with Christ, Paul is genuinely conflicted. He's genuinely conflicted because he loves the church that much. He loves the Philippian church that much. He recognizes the benefit of him staying. And so he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. Because although this is what I would want, I know this is better for you. And so that's what has him convinced that his deliverance is a physical deliverance is because he recognizes the benefit to the church. And so here's another thing for us to think about. When we think about serving Jesus Christ, do we think about other people before we think about ourselves? Do we think about what is best for the rest of the body before we think about what we want? Because we should. So many churches have been split apart by people who refuse to think about anyone other than themselves. And that is not what we are called to be as the church of Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to look at a passage where we see in Christ himself the example of considering other people as more significant than ourselves. And that's the thing that Paul is building to here in talking to the Philippians about what it means when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your life belongs to Jesus. Thus, you should live like Jesus. And so as we think about application this morning, as we think about how to apply this text to our lives, I will go one verse beyond our text this morning and say this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you want to know how to apply this text to your lives? Live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, here's the reality. You are never going to be able to do that on your own. But you strive for it. You work at it. You pray and you read the scriptures and you apply them to your life. And you say, Lord, make me like Jesus Christ. And that is how you live a life that is worthy of the gospel. The next thing to recognize as we think about applying this is that if we are persecuted, if we are persecuted, we need to make sure that we are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel and not for the sake of ourselves. My youth pastor used to say, if you're persecuted, make sure it's for Jesus and not because you're a jerk. I see a lot of people that claim persecution when in reality, they're just jerks. And people don't like them because of that. That was not what Paul was. That was not Paul. And that's not who we should be either. We should stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let that be what people would persecute us for. 
I pray that we don't face that in our lifetimes. But we probably will. And we should be very sure that that's what we're being persecuted for. And the last thing to consider this morning as you think about application is to set your mind on the things of God. It is very easy for us to be consistently distracted by the things of the world and let our minds be drawn away from Christ and be drawn away from God, be drawn away from his word because I got to think about all these things that I have going on at work. I got to think about all these problems that are happening in my family. I've got to think about all these things that I need to fix around the house. I got to think about this. I got to think about that. I got to think about all these different things. You must actively set your mind on the things of God. That is not a passive thing that is just going to happen. No matter how long you have been a Christian, it doesn't just happen. And the longer you've been a Christian, the more you understand that. The more you see how easily distracted we are. And so this week, I encourage you, set your mind on the things of God. Because when that is where our focus is, it is so much easier to remember that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so as we close this morning, know that I am available to talk with you at any point. You can call me, you can text me, you can email me, you can drop by the office, you can knock on my door. There's still boxes all over my house, but that's okay. But I want to help you. I want to work to equip you for the work of ministry. I want to walk with you through understanding and applying what it means to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Brother Scott's going to come and we're going to sing. We're going to have a time right now where you can really pray and think and ask God to help us because it is only by his help that we can truly accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to accomplish what we could not. For sending your son to give us life, to help us to understand what our lives should be. And I pray, Father, for Evans Creek Baptist Church that we would be known as a people who live to serve Jesus Christ always. Help us, Lord, this week, this month, this year, to set our mind on you. To free us from distractions that Christ would be all to us. We pray this in his name. Amen.